Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shin. For some, gardening can act as a love letter to our family history. The act of cultivating the same plants and herbs that your grandmother or even great-grandmother might have grown can keep us connected to our roots. It can also serve as a reminder of what people needed to do in order to survive through history and present. Today, we're talking to gardeners and farmers in the Asian American Pacific Islander, or AAPI community. We'll hear from a panel hosted by the Connecticut Museum of Culture and History called Heritage Roots. But first up, we hear from Pooh Vakamdi. He is the Natural Resources Conservation Service, Rhode Island State Conservationist, and a refugee from Laos. I started our conversation by asking about his experience as a refugee and how that influences how he views the land. As a refugee, uh, a little bit story about me as a rural refugee. Um, when I was leaving Laos, um, my family is a farmer. We grow rice paddy, um, so, and then tobacco, uh, green silkworms, and some other vegetable like chili pepper and and uh, and many other vegetable. Um, so back then, uh, after the war, uh, the the life is really hard, um, and and I hate farming. <laughs> to be honest with you, uh, I, I I feel like I, I have no future, and even though I went to school, um, if I do good in school, I'm not sure what the life will be. Um, we have two seasons, uh, dry and wet, rainy and, and not rain that way. Um, back then, we don't have tractor. Uh, you know, we use water buffalo to plow the land. I have to get up early in the morning and take the water buffalo out to the farmland and do the first tillage. <laughs> so, um, and then after the, I've done with my uh, the tillers, and you know the first tillers is just like to killing the weed or the grass. And um, then been uh, about two three, about two hours of tillers, you do a little by little. You know each day you don't get it done at one time because of water buffalo is tired. And then I will come into uh, the the land that we grow mulberry trees, where my grandma will pick the leaves uh, of mulberry. Uh, trees. Um, she will put in the big, two big basket. Then I have to yoke that uh, for her because she, you know, she can pick the lead, but she cannot do really heavy, uh, heavy duty work. So I have to yoke that to our house, and then she will uh, feed it to the silkworm. And then I will go out to the farm again and farm our, our rice paddy to just. Uh, maintenance with our little terrace so that 
when we get the rain and get the water so the water will not run away, you know, and things. So, and, and life is hard. So I decided, you know, I need to get out of here because I hate farming. <laughs> so that's why I left Laos and came to live in refugee camp in Thailand. And then when I was in refugee camp, I applied for asylum to come to United States. And that's how I end up in St. Cloud, Minnesota um, uh, with the sponsor. And um, well, the Catholic church that sponsored me to came over here. And then uh, because my parents didn't come with me, I was a teenager and they found me a foster family. So they take care of me so I can live with them. That's the way back in 1981. So. Well, it's hilarious that would you, as a as a teenager, would you ever have thought that you will be working in this capacity today? <laughs> no, I have no idea. See, that's why I, when when you ask me about uh, my plan or how I end up, you know, I can't really tell you. I never really have planned. Right. I just like looking at okay. If any opportunity open it, I was the door open, I will walk in. But if it's not it, I will walk out or I just get, you know, keep moving and go out the back door, you know. So I just don't say no to opportunity. And um it 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 really interesting to me is that I start to love about this job is because um after a few years, I came to realize that, wow, this must be my destiny. I was a farmer. I had farming. That's why I came over here. And now after I tried to, you know, after my education, I end up working for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They're working directly with the farmer and helping the farmer, taking care of the land, you know. So... I like wow, what what happened? What's happening? <laughs> well, it sounds like you were already preparing yourself for this moment without realizing. And and you yeah. know, you, you know, you you sharing that growing up, you did not like farming. That was not a direction that you wanted to go, and you didn't realize, you didn't think that there was going to be a future. But coming here, clearly, that like you said, it's in your destiny. Did did that experience um, growing up on a family farm? Did that influence how you see land and natural resources here in the states? Uh, yes, in a way. First, first of all, um, you know, when you are a farmer, you work hard and you don't take things for granted. Um, uh, a lot of people can be starving, but we're not, you know. Uh, it's hard, but at least we have a land to grow food for ourselves. And, and you, you, you know, you're raising into an environment that not take things for granted. And uh, yes, back then, I really don't understand uh, uh, what we did. It, it's a conservation. You just do it. And for example, we didn't really um, um, use a lot of fertilizers. And we also left a lot of... Um, residue you know like uh straw from the rice or or or, or straw from the tobacco left it in the field instead of moving them and all of that 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 in a way is kind of a practice that we have here uh in 
in U.S. in U.S. We, uh, you know, our conservation practice here that we call that residue management. So, and then um, uh, we back then, it, it technology was not uh, well. We really don't, you know, because um, we don't understand about using fertilizer either. So that's why we didn't we didn't use it. But again, our land is kind of on the valley along Mekong Delta, uh, Mekong Rivers, and then we get flooded like almost every year. Uh, when that flooding occurs, it seems like that it bring up new soil uh, to our land, and then and and that's why. Uh, our crop would just grow really nice, even though we didn't use any fertilizer. So, uh, but that's, you know, uh, but when I came here, I have further uh, understanding about the conservation, about uh, when you do, uh, when you fertilizing, you need to be really careful because otherwise you can um, uh, destroy the land if you put too much. It got to be about right, you know, where the plant can take up and the nutrients and then don't leave anything behind that it can cause damage to the soil. So. And you you were just talking about, too, that, you know, soil and land is what gives us food. And I've had a lot of conversations recently with refugees from different countries who seem to share very similar cultural values when it comes to land and giving a lot of reverence and respect because, like you were saying, land gives us food and water while mm. at the same time being able to create bonds between family and friends when you're doing you know, gardening together and whatnot. Do you think that is a relationship that's still prevalent today? Or do you think we as a society have become disconnected with our land? Um, I have to say yes and no. Uh, the reason I because it depends on the group that you're talking about. Uh, the, like myself, uh, like people that you have talked to, I have to say that, yeah, uh, we see the connection. We see that Mother Earth is something that take care for us, we have to take care uh, of her. And then we looking at that, you know, God create no more lands. This is what we have. We have to uh, take care of it, conserve it because for the new generation. But then, you know, uh, uh, when you, I'll get back to that, but then let's say you talk to other group like developer, for example, they really don't care. They just want to build a building. That's why I say yes and no, because they depend on who, because those developers, they really don't care much about what is land. They just want to build a, build a building, right? So that's, that's also, they have a different perspective as well. So now for 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 us, the refugees that have background on agriculture, you know, even though when we come here, we don't have land to farm, but a little land that we have or, or available uh, to uh, 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 to the public uh, from the public that we can go the garden or we have in our backyard that we can grow our own gardens and yes it it create the connection I mean I, I I plan to have a hobby farm in the future uh, maybe when I retire but I every year I always plant something in my garden um. And then um, I share with people because I, I can't really eat all of it. 
anyway. So there'll always be, um, uh, then it's night because, you know, when it's time to harvest, like let's say I I grow mustard and then I say, oh, it's too much of it. I can't eat. Well, call my friend, call neighbor who want to come over and pick the mustard or Chinese broccoli and all of that, you know, or hot chili pepper. So we were sharing food. And then you also, uh, I hope, uh, you know, you also, also have the organization or even uh, um you know that that provide land for people that that don't have land that can come in as community to to grow food uh or to do something for themselves and um uh a lot of uh a lot of folks even individual they have land they have hobby farm but they grow it but they're not selling it they end up donating to the food bank we have those type of people so Yes, it 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 is the connection, and then at the same time, uh, I, I just want to mention another. I know organization that using the garden to um, to relieve the stress. To you know, um, we have uh, I know organization that uh, helping the veteran to overcome the anxiety or depressions and all of that by you know. Uh, plant the flower, do gardens and, and, and all of that for uh, not just only for their family, but also for the uh, food bank as well. So, and yes, definitely, definitely the land that connecting us is a part of the culture, sharing the food and the smile. Well, just you describing your garden makes me want to come and raid it. <laughs> well, and then, yeah, and I love that you mentioned community and connection because I think that's something that a lot of the gardeners that I've spoken with they share very similar ideas. It's it's like they oh, yeah. yeah they you're eating food that's from your garden. There's a certain feeling of success with it, right? And then when you're gardening with your family, they feel the love in it, and then you're teaching your children to love the land. And right. all of that. And so because you've had such an interesting experience, I mean, interesting is not the best. It's not the best word, but but you've had such a drastic experience with with gardening because it was once something that you have to do for your family, for your grandmother. And then you're like, I don't want to do that. And you came here and you're still doing it. <laughs> so, yeah, <and> exactly. so, <laughs> right. So jokes on you. But um, so with the experience of gardening and cultivating for survival, which was your, I think, your first experience, versus for pleasure and joy. You know, you're talking about having a hobby garden when you when you retire. Is that something that you resonate with? Is the differences of gardening, the differences of cultivating for survival versus for pleasure? Um, well, yes, and then I just also want to add that it regarded or the pressure or try to um self-sustain or or survival um is it's all about growing food um so as a pressure we still grow food as a hobby we still grow food and we still eat that and we still sharing it you know um so it's um it it I don't know how to describe it. it. It's really a good feeling that you really don't know how to describe it when you 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 grow things and you share with people. I think I think maybe because of 
you know, our happiness is come from helping people and make people happy. When people happy, and then we happy. I think that that might be the case because to me, if I, I give, if I make people happy, then make me happy. If I don't make people happy, I feel sad. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really legitimate think, to me. <laughs> I think maybe maybe that's a human nature. Maybe right. that is maybe our society. Because we got it uh uh yeah, uh yes, back then uh, you know, uh living in Laos uh as a farmer, uh I, I live off the land, okay. Uh now that uh here uh I still leave up the land but it's not 100 percent. but it but it did because we have plenty of food here that you can buy and and sell uh, uh from folks you know and then at the same time you can share as well so it it, it was abundant to be honest with you um uh when it come to food in in united states so but 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 again um even though we are abundant, we still have people that is still uh, starving and lack of food. And, and because I think maybe our distribution was not really good system. So, but we got it. I, I like I said, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, farming. And uh, yes, I like to have a hobby farm uh, when I retire. So hopefully I get one or two acre of lands that I can Grow not just only vegetable, maybe some type of tropical food, dragon food, lynchies, and uh, pear, you know, Asian pears and all. I have a few Asian pears in my backyard, but it never grows fruit. So well, it never burns fruit. I was going <laughs> to say, if you're able to successfully grow a guava tree, I'm absolutely heading over to your backyard. <laughs> <laughs> We're hearing from Puva Kamdi. He is a Rhode Island state conservationist. Stay with us. This is where we live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. A garden can be a sacred and special place. There are so many health benefits that come with gardening and a deep sense of satisfaction in growing something with your hands. 
But the act of gardening goes beyond working with the soil in our own backyards. Today, we're talking to Pooh Vakamdi. He's a Rhode Island state conservationist. Pooh holds a bachelor's degree in soil science from the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. A native of Laos, Pooh was raised on a family farm growing rice, tobacco, silkworms, sugarcane, and vegetables. I asked him about his work supporting underserved farmers. I started my career in Minnesota, working in Minnesota about, uh, about 15 years and then moved to Oklahoma, transferred to Oklahoma for about five years. And now I'm here in Rhode Island. It's about 14, 15 years now. So I've been with the agency about 33, 34 years. Um, uh, I, I, our agency is kind of, uh, in the ways it, it it was created about um, uh, about eighty years ago now, you know, way back in nineteen yeah, so nineteen thirties. That's a lot. A lot of people know who we are, and and part of that is like, okay, first of all, we were agency to provide technical assistance. When you're talking about technical assistance, is more like providing advice to taking care of the lands. If you have erosion. What kind of practices you need to do to take in, to 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 in conservation practice to install in that land so that so that uh so that it so that we don't have erosions and so on. Um so a lot of folk um um really don't know us. So we make an extra effort that we create the outreach position. So we have a outreach coordinator and helping us um uh, to uh, make sure we're reaching out to everyone that go food. Uh, at one time, we were more like um, uh, concentrate on more like grazing lands, uh, a dairy farm, uh, corn and grain, uh, corn and soybeans and things. But not so much people that in urban area and 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 um, uh, all all vegetable farm or orchard and all of that. Uh, so I think. Every five years, uh, 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 Congress have passed, we call the Farm Bill. So it changed every five years. Um, lately, it had been changed that, hey, we need to look at the urban farm. These folk are underserved. And um, we need to um, make sure we uh, give them provide technical assistance uh also financial assistance as well so now that when you're looking at uh conservation practices that need to be implemented on the land it needs funding it needs financial assistance so now uh the agency have the financial as, uh, program as well as a technical now not just only a technical so um and then um the work is continuing. We are doing a good job, uh, a really good job. Uh, is ongoing. Uh, we have um, now uh, every time when we get funding, we will make sure that uh, the part of the money that we we have, we got to looking at. Okay, how much we need to give? We're gonna spend for the urban farm. How much we need to spend on the uh, dairy farm, how much uh, we need to spend on a cash grain farm, uh, farmers and all, all, all orchard farm and, and, and all of that. So 
And then um, even we just about every year, we never really have enough funding, but we take care of folks, one family at a time. So um, if they miss out this year, because money, we have to go to the rankings and all of that, and then they miss out, they didn't get funds, so maybe sure next year we'll be able to fund it and so on. So, is is there something specific that you hope people will take away from this conversation, or were were there experiences that surprised you when you talked to people? You know, what do you hope our listeners learn from this? Well, I hope that um, seeing we in the farm uh, farming subject, and then I know that we have a lot of folk love the land and wants the land and want to get into farming. Uh, yeah, uh, everything we do in life is all always challenging. Farming is one of them. And then farming in the United States is not just only about self-sustained, it's also about uh, uh, relationship with the land. It's about uh, helping other people as well, and also a business, you know. So I, I hope that uh, uh, when Anyone that want to get into this farming or even doing people's uh, do gardening, know that uh, the agency I work for, uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service, we have staff that can help you, uh, providing technical advi- advice um, and also a financial assistance to, to implement conservation practice in that land uh, because when we we need to take care of the land so um to before uh if any far a new farmer that looking for the land and bef- uh decided to buy the land so they can farm don't hesitate to come and talk to us we can help uh by looking at that farm okay what is you know, oh, wow, this is a good soil. If you're going to, uh, uh, you know, what are you planning to do? it? And we can give them advice and a lot of options. And let's say, well, we want to go into uh, grazing, for example. We can say, well, okay, this is like a, be a good land to go grass. So you can go, uh, you can, um, you know, so you can um, uh, raising the cattle and, uh then we can say, then we will help you with, okay, uh, if, if you do grazing management, we can help uh, providing the funding for fencing or uh, uh, get a well so that you can get clean water to the cattle you know, and have a pile and 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 uh, and taking the water out to the pasture and thing like that. Or you get the land for a couple acres or an acre that want to do a vegetable crop. We can say, okay, this could be a good land to grow vegetable. Uh, hey, we we you need irrigation. We will be able to help you uh, drill a well. And where's the location that you think you can get the water? And then we have hoop house, you know, like uh, it's not, uh, I call hoop house or uh, high tunnel. Um, it's it's not a hundred percent. It's not really a greenhouse. So you probably see that you know that the plastic that cover and people farm and on, on, you know in inside it. So that because um, uh, we can build something like that and help pay for that. And so I, I encourage that folks who get into farming already farm 
and don't know who we are, come and talk to us. We can help. We can really help. That was Puva Kamdi, the Rhode Island State Conservationist. Coming up next, we're listening back to an event at the Connecticut Museum of Culture and History called Heritage Roots. I speak with gardeners and farmers in the AAPI community about their journeys working with the soil. This is where we live. Stay with us. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shedd. In May, the Connecticut Museum of Culture and History hosted a conversation with gardeners in the Asian American Pacific Islander or AAPI community, a conversation called Heritage Roots. We talked about what it means to grow plants and seeds from their culture and how that process can be healing. We're going to listen back to some highlights from the panel. You'll hear from Hien Nguyen, who is a member of the Asian Pacific American Coalition of Connecticut, Vaicheth M, who is an organic farmer and homesteader in Preston, Connecticut, and from the co-founder of AAPI New Haven, Christine Kim. First up, we'll hear from Hien Nguyen. I asked her how she got started gardening. My name is Hien, and I was born and raised in Vietnam. Um, I remember when I was very young, maybe like, maybe four, um, I followed my mom to her garden. Um, all I remember was the Chayati um, chalice. So she collected tips of the vines to make a soup, a vegetable soup. She planted many things, but I was too young at that time. I went to the garden just to run around. But then um, when I was a little bit older, we moved to Saigon, which is a big city. So we didn't have land at the, the time. I remember in front of the house, because it's so tiny, and we do have a front kind of um, porch, but it was all cemented. But for some reason, there are two pockets of soil. And I remember my mom, she grew the rich, um, uh, what's the name? It's, it's like loofah. It's, it's like loofah, but it has the rich around it. And she had two roots. Um, all we need is just a trellis for that to climb up. So we didn't really need a lot of land. But then, after the war, after a couple of years, we moved to Canada. And we stayed with my, my brother at his townhouse. And I remember the walkway leading to the, the front door. You know, like townhouse, everyone has a little piece of land for flower bed, but my mom, she grew the sweet uh, cabbage. And I was so embarrassed. I said, mom, this is for flowers. It's not for vegetables. I tried to talk to her, you know, out of it. But she said, now, listen, when these are matured, you're gonna see tiny yellow flowers. So we're gonna have both. We're gonna have a flower garden. We're gonna have a vegetable garden. So I was like, okay, <laughs> if that what you said, and then after a few years, I got married to my husband and I moved to the US, to, to the US and now we have a garden in the back. You know, I, I feel like since very young, I always see a garden, see a garden, even though it's large or small. So it's just very natural for me. And my husband, he loves, you know, gardening too. So we started first just one bed and then let's go to another bed and you know how it is. So, yeah, so that's the story. 
I asked Vaicheth M, who's an organic farmer and homesteader in Preston, to talk about her background and how she got into gardening. My parents and I are refugees, so I was one refugee camp in Thailand. And um, I learned recently I was in a refugee camp in Indonesia as well. And then we uh, settled in New London, Connecticut. And my early life was living in Section 8. And when they saved every penny you buy, a house, they had a garden, so I always remember the fresh taste of fresh food. And that doesn't leave you. And my mother, even though she was working, we always came home to like a home-cooked meal, and that was what I was used to. So when I uh, went to college and we would go out to eat with friends, I just remember making this comment like, do you guys call this real food? And they're like, yeah, it feeds us, right? And I'm just like, hmm. like, I couldn't put it to words. Like, it just felt fake, if you know what I mean, when you're just so used to like real uh, home cooked meals so, um, and like fresh produce. So I just remember like hitting around, I'm gonna go to New York, I'm gonna have a rooftop garden, blah, blah, blah. That didn't happen, but it, it went a different one. So um, uh, I met my uh, partner around 2009 and uh, we learned that we were both weirdos and um, like liked gardening and looked into homesteadings and living off the land. And so I, we, uh, I took a course through New Entry Sustainable Farming Project in uh, Low Mass, and it was actually started by a pilot that sadly got killed by 9-11, and his first, um, the program helped basically refugee Cambodians um, uh, get into farming, actually, and that's where um, gardening uh, became farming. So my first year, uh, I, in 2011, I just was a gardener. I had uh, buckets and buckets of soil. just growing along my produce. I Cambodian women are afraid of caterpillars. So I remember when I had to face caterpillars and ran from them. I can actually be near them now. Came a long way and I can actually touch worms. So um, the year after that, um, the community farm of Sinsbury, that was the name of the farm at the time, um, had a program where they were taking new beginning farmers and they had access to land, access to a cooler space, access to water, all these resources uh, for low cost. And that started my journey in 2012. I actually reached out to Mike that year when he was like, photographer, I'm like, hey, I'm looking for a photographer. I'm like, I can't afford you right now. But <laughs> we became friends later. So it's been a decade. When I started um, uh, 10 years ago, like I was like really the only minority that was like a farmer. I would go to all these farming functions and it was like me and somebody else and everyone else was Caucasian. And uh, just in the past few years, I just think it's so beautiful and more um, people of color really want to farm and they get so excited. Like I'm assisting with um, some urban farmers in Hartford when I can and just like seeing the magic and they're like, this is just so magical and we're excited to become farmers and I, I, I love it. Next, I turn to food and social justice activist Christine Kim. She's the co-founder of AAPI New Haven and I asked her about her introduction to gardening. I actually need to admit I'm not a very good gardener. Um, any plant that usually has ever lived in my house has never lived to see another day. Um, but my journey to gardening is um, through love, memory, um, food, and family. So um, when I was younger, my grandmother, who was actually a North Korean, my, my mom, who's, who are North Korean refugees, you know, many decades ago. Um, and even though it's on one peninsula, the geography and climate is quite different from north to south. And they spent most of the way they ate vegetation actually foraging 
through the very mountainous sides, maybe little plots here and there, but mainly foraging. And um, I, every time I walked with my grandmother or mother, they would always be picking weeds and picking things out of people's yards, probably illegally. And I remember being so jealous, I mean, I'm not jealous, ashamed, sorry. Now I'm jealous um, because they knew, um, and it, it wasn't just about feeding themselves at that point, which it also was, especially after the war, but it was remembering what the plants were and, and, and passing that knowledge out and remembering the smell and knowing to blanch it, otherwise it would be poisonous, or this mushroom and not that. And so um, many years later when I lived away from my family, um, I, I started being that crazy lady who was going into people's yards and picking, they're like, oh, that's a weed. I'm like, no, this is this is gonna be my uh, dinner and I'm gonna dry this and it's gonna, I'm gonna save it for later. And, and then I started planting and raising a lot of the vegetables that I grew up with, or the Korean food, but also other foods that I'd learned. Um, in, in, when I used to live in Southeast Asia, I would plant them and fail um, and Gardening is such a, a metaphor for life in so many ways. You have to, you know, have a seed. It's a miracle that it grows. We need to tend it. You need to get rid of the weeds. And it's 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 such a meditative, amazing process that I do with my hands and my body, even though I'm not very good at it. But the plants seem to thrive and grow. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes bugs eat them and, you know, trials happen. There's not enough rain. Um, but every time I do it, I think of my family and my ancestors in the connection. I think of the yummy food I, I want to make and eat and share. Because I get, because I'm not a good gardener, I try to support gardeners and farmers in other ways. So I'm um, the board chair of City Seed, which runs the farmers markets in New Haven and helps um, encourage our local food system and support local agriculture. In addition to being on um, the committee for the Connecticut Department of Ag on their diversity, equity, and inclusion to really get more um, BIPOC farmers and really trying to encourage them. At, uh, we just had a night market in New Haven last Friday. We for the first time sold Asian vegetable seedlings. Um, and these are things I would have to either grow first for myself and they would usually die. So I would have to go to New York or New Jersey to get them. Um, but we found this amazing farmer who helped and we want to grow more Connecticut seedlings next year. And so, yeah, I'm just like, it's, it's, it's been such a trip. I mean, if you ask any of my family members, they, they think I'm crazy with they know I'm not a very good gardener, but um, they do know how much I love food and family and friends and community and to have um, gardening, seeds, plants, growth um, to connect us all through that um, and for us to learn from each other has been the greatest gift. Although gardening can serve as an act of leisure and comfort, for some, it started as a necessity and survival. Here's Christine Kim again, talking about her parents, followed by Vicheth M. They were, again, like learning to survive. They didn't really learn to garden. They learned to study work and they tried to, I remember in our yard, um, I grew up in the Chicagoland area, they tried to plant some things, but my dad didn't know how to grow either, it might be in the blood. So he would put so much miracle grow. like now I know what to do, but he put so much miracle grow on the stuff. So it grew, but it was like blue, right? Because it <laughs> that on, 
and I think there was a big breakage, and I think it's in world culture too that we've gotten far away from the land and knowing our food and growing our own food or touching it or recognizing it into seeing it packaged or just pre-made for us. And so it's been a coming back to that and both for myself and my parents and I think a lot of our society. Um, I think, you know, just generations ago, even in America, people grew most a lot of their own vegetables and then we all went to the supermarket and now coming back. And I think this is happening a lot of Asian urbanization as well and coming, everyone starting to realize, oh, this is not, we actually need to be connected to our food, our land, like, and, and slow things down a bit, so. In my farming career, I was an organic farmer. So we had to build a rhythm with the soil, um, with nature, with the beneficial insects. Um, and it, it works. I remember like one time, like, our kale like got eaten up by a certain type of caterpillar and we chose not to spray and we just knew that we had to keep our soil healthy and the kale fought back and there's courses you can take on this and everything like that and I just wanted to emphasize that for me my first year of becoming a farmer one of my first crops was the sugar and snap peas which I could sell out our door and I missed that and um and I remember just like like harvesting the sugar snap peas and it was like a spiritual experience. I was like, oh my God, I'm harvesting snap peas to go to the farmer's market. I'm like, oh my God, I'm connected to something bigger. And then um, just like, it, it's so magical. And right this year, how I'm connected with my parents right now is I'm teaching them to grow. They're teaching me stuff that I'm teaching them. They don't know about direct seeding. Direct seeding means like growing crops directly from the ground where you could directly put the seed in the ground and it grows. And, um, I taught them the variety sugar and snap peas is the variety. It's not a pole, so you don't need a trellis. So you just like uh, put it in the ground and it'll grow and you'll get the flowers and the peas and it just grows really, really well. I asked a panelist about the importance of making space for BIPOC farmers. Here's Christine and Vicheth. I think because there has been no space, especially in Connecticut, um, I think not just space for BIPOC farmers, I think just farmers, organic, small farmers in general. Um, but in that space, BIPOC farmers have always been there from the beginning from, but you know, the first Asian Americans come to like, were farm workers, right? And sugar plantations in Hawaii and et cetera. And um, I think that without a, like diversity and belonging in agriculture, there's, it's, it's not a sustainable agriculture, right? Like, so saying about agriculture isn't just about the soil or the earth, it's about the people and the communities that sustains, and that it needs to be equity, equitable from the soil, right? From the soil up and who accesses it, who accesses the, the capital, the marketing, the markets. Um, and so without, without that being at the core of, 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 of sustainable agriculture and our food system, then it, it's never going to be equitable at any, any level. So that's why um, supporting those organizations, supporting the farmers, making, shouting out policymakers to make space in there and, and think it's not just, you know, the, the corn farmers or the blueberry farmers or, you know, um, that, that are on the pictures of every agricultural 
marketing thing, but it's it starts with gardeners because we're feeding ourselves or feeding our communities and our communities are becoming more diverse and we deserve um, more in that space. I think there's definitely been more interest in the BIPOC community where they're coming out and they're like, hey, we want to grow food and we actually want to find a way to do this for a living. And I do think the state of Connecticut needs to be be more creative and not as restricted of like like farmland, like farm access is like such an issue. Like why does it have to be like, okay, to be zoned agriculture, at least like five acres, for example, like if I have an acre in my backyard and I'm able to produce crops and I don't know, like set up some sort of um, certification certificate with LLC, like we need to be more creative because like uh, she was saying, like BIPOC growers have been doing this forever. We just never got that recognition and everything like that. And um, like, I remember like 10 years ago, I just want to not put down or anything like that might come out right. When I got to the Cottage Farmers Market, it was very, very competitive. It was like, who had the best this? Who had the best that? And it wasn't like as much as a community versus where when I was growing side by side my BIPOC community, um, people from different countries, like we were all about community and we were all about helping each other and helping each other thrive. Um, so I definitely see there's been um, like much more like visibility, but we can go. We still have a long way to go. And of course, connection with family, passing along their gardening knowledge and traditions to their kids and younger family members is important and powerful. Here's Hien talking about her daughter, followed by Vaicheth and Christine. Um, I remember when she was younger, um, she was in, in um, uh, I think like 11 grade maybe, and one day she got into trouble with me and she said, Mom, you are an Asian mother. I was like, yes, I'm Asian. <laughs> you know how they kind of, you know, like, not want to take your guys. But now I'm so proud of her. You know, she, she's very proud of, of who she is. You know, um, every time she has something, she wants to take a picture and send it to me. Mom, look at this. And was like, how did you do it? You do a better job than I do here. And then, you know, like she, if she comes visit, she's going to take my seats. And she even sent her seat for me, you know. Um, and we, we plan many things that are similar to each other. Yeah, yeah. So um, that really comfort to, to see my daughter embracing. What's special is because now I'm a like new auntie, my niece and nephew are building that palette and they're half Puerto Rican and Cambodian. And um, so they're like learning more about both roots and everything. So I try to make sure that they know their Hispanic heritage too. Um, but like, you know, like the long beans, my my nephew, he'll just eat it like it's nothing. The cherry tomatoes that I grow. And I'm just happy that he's developing that palate and knowing what real food is. And that's what I think about. And I, I just can't wait to see him. And he's already like, I want to grow food too. And he's telling his mom, mommy, how much money do you need to make? Well, let's grow. So a little fun thing I'm doing is like, I, I'm still connected with the Carvajal Farmer's Market and they have a youth market um, uh, uh, once on Sunday. So uh, we're going to grow some stuff. We're going to rock at the market. I'm like, Ozzy's not going to take over. This is you and your sister's opportunity to grow. <laughs> so we'll see how that happens. But that's what goes on. But I want to tell a story actually about family and um, a garden that's in New Haven, um, sort of low, like colloquially known as the grandparents' garden. So there is this um, area where a lot of grad grad students 
come and they live there with their families and a lot of them bring their parents. Um, for a long time, those Chinese um, grandparents that would come to take care of their children while they were working the labs and studying. And um, they somehow just started to plant in this empty half quarter acre of land in underneath some trees secretly. And this is about 20 years and slowly it just grew and grew. And nobody knows how it started or why, but it just kept on growing. And there are all of these huge trellises growing long beans and every vegetable, there's no water source. So they actually bring buckets, like you have like old soy sauce containers all over, like old buckets and they bring water from their apartments just across the street. So they need to bring in a couple hundred yards every, every almost every day. And they've built this and no one has really, no one knows who really owns the land, but they haven't said anything. And so it becomes this thing, but everyone's like, wait, what, what? It keeps on growing every year. And, um, and, and, um, we, we, we offer to like try to do tours and like help, help them. And they're like, no, we don't want that. This is, this is an ecosystem of our neighborhood of not just Chinese now, it's Bangladeshi, like it is, you know, Vietnamese, just all of these families that are all immigrants, um, but they have created this garden together and they pass it down and no one really knows how it's passed down. It's not like centrally managed. It's just a gorgeous story of a new family being created here through um, a, a, a lover. Thanks to Christine Kim, co-founder of AAPI New Haven, Hien Nguyen, a member of the Asian Pacific American Coalition of Connecticut, and by Chef M, an organic farmer and homesteader in Preston, Connecticut. That was part of a conversation I moderated at the Connecticut Museum of Culture and History called Heritage Roots. The panel also included members of the Hmong Foundation of Connecticut. We'll link to this event on our webpage, ctpublic.org slash where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. To listen back to all of your favorite Where We Live conversations, download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible. And thank you so much for listening.